It should have been a winner. An all-star cast, an Academy Award-nominated scriptwriter, a director who had been part of the Hollywood scene for over four decades, and an extravagant producer known for his over-the-top movies. How could a combination like this go wrong? Oh, and it did, in so many ways. Not only was this film poorly cast, written, and directed, it also turned deadly. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Picture this. The camera pans out to see miles and miles of arid-looking desert. Bluffs and buttes jut out of the grounds, reds and brown earth surrounded by bright blue skies. Did you think you were in China? The producer sure thought you would. But no, my friends, that is just Hollywood magic, turning Utah into Asia. Now, how about this? You see a cloud of dust rising up from behind a bluff in the distance, when dozens of horses with riders wearing colorful 12th century Asian garb come galloping onto the screen, swords flashing and flailing. They must mean business. Then, in big yellow letters, the screen reads, Titanic in scope. And then those words are replaced with, Titanic in spectacle. And then, Titanic in action but they forgot one. Titanic in sinking. The 1956 film The Conqueror was released by RKO as one of Howard Hughes' pet projects. Howard Hughes, in case you don't know, was one of the biggest and most successful businessmen and movie moguls of the 40s and 50s. Unfortunately, he's the guy that will be remembered for his bouts of OCD and wandering around wearing tissue boxes as shoes, locking himself away watching movies for hours on end, and collecting his own urine. But before that, well, yes, he was always a bit of an eccentric, and yes, his OCD got worse over time, but many believe that it was this project that pushed him over the edge. Let me go back a bit. The movie is called The Conqueror and was directed by Dick Powell. The film is based on the history about the nasty, bloodthirsty historical character Genghis Khan. His historical presence tells of his uniting many small bands and then conquering much of Europe and Asia in the 1200s. Many stories have been written about him, and many movies have been made. But this one might have him turning over in his grave. John Wayne plays the Mongol conqueror Genghis Khan. He was box office gold at the time when they were looking to cast this film. You know that golden window of time in an actor's career that it seems like they can do no wrong? Okay, so right before that. According to the Hollywood Hall of Shame, quote, The screenplay was written with Marlon Brando in mind for the lead. John Wayne was about to make the last film of a three-picture deal for RKO Radio Pictures, and Dick Powell had been assigned to direct. They were going over the various scripts in Powell's office when Powell was called away for a few minutes. When he returned, 
he found Wayne enthusiastically looking over the screenplay for The Conqueror, which Powell had intended to throw away. Powell tried to talk him out of it, but Wayne insisted that it was the film he wanted to make. As Powell later said, quote, Who am I to turn down John Wayne? End quote. In all fairness, on paper it seemed like it could be a fit. The historical version of Khan was similar to the type of character Wayne had played in the past. Manly man, very stoic, lots of action. Fight first, negotiate later. The quintessential all-American fighting man who could overcome great odds. Just use a few coats of tan face paint, slap on a Fu Manchu stash, and it would all be good, right? Wrong. Oh, so wrong. The New York Times in 1956 says it perfectly when they called it, quote, an Oriental Western. It was literally John Wayne in tan face paint and a Fu Manchu mustache. Same walk, same drawl, same, well, John Wayne. Insiders would say that Wayne actually made no additional attempt to familiarize himself with the role, but just hit it like every other role he's played. There may be many of you from my generation, and you probably have parents that believe that John Wayne was the best thing since sliced bread and can do no wrong. So, do me a favor, don't tell my mom about this episode. This was the first RKO release using CinemaScope. This was a special camera that allowed those panoramic views and wide shots for the horse riding and sword fights. Side note, Howard Hughes was perturbed that CinemaScope was under contract through 20th Century Fox, so Hughes got his team to work on finding their own version of the widescreen camera lens, which became SuperScope. These days, it's said that writer-director-producer James Cameron of Titanic fame still uses a version of this same technology called SuperScope 35. So anyway... In order to make the most of these wide-angle shots, the majority of the scenes were to be shot on location. That location just happened to be St. George and Snow Canyon, Utah. Wide open spaces, lots of bluffs and valleys and places to hide like any good western would need. Oh, I meant Mongolian War film. However, this particular location was near the border of Nevada, that also happened to be a few miles from where nuclear testing had been done. And by testing, I mean that no less than 11 nuclear bombs had been detonated there. Sure, sure, it was three years earlier, and yeah, like I said, it was a couple hundred miles away. But Hughes double-checked. He contacted the U.S. government to make sure his movie had the green light to go ahead and film, and that everything was safe and under control. The Atomic Energy Commission of the United States told him that it would be perfectly safe. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. 
Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free, so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. I'm going to break this down a little bit for you. In 1953, Operation Upshot Knothole was in full swing. The nuclear weapons that were detonated left all kinds of radioactivity on the ground. It penetrated into the ground for miles and miles. And then, when the winds blew, and the winds do get a bit gusty, it would continue to spread the nuclear waste even further and the tainted land would accumulate into mounds of nuclear-active sand. For reference, the bomb that dropped on Hiroshima was 13 kilotons. The devastation from that bomb, following up to a three-mile radius, was destroyed or heavily damaged. Beyond this distance of damage, although comparatively light, it extended for several more miles. Glass was broken up to 12 miles away. Journalist Dan Listwa from Columbia University's Center for Nuclear Studies writes, quote, Within the first few months after the bombing, it is estimated by the Radiation Effects Research Foundation that between 90,000 and 166,000 people died in Hiroshima, while another 60,000 to 80,000 died in Nagasaki. These deaths include those who died due to the force and excruciating heat of the explosions as well as the deaths caused by acute radiation exposure, end quote. Among the long-term effects suffered by atomic bomb survivors, the most deadly was leukemia. This is a form of cancer that breaks down the body's blood-forming tissues, making it difficult to fight off infections. An increase in leukemia appeared about two years after the attacks and peaked around four to six years later, and then it mutated into other forms of cancer. Cancer rates among the survivors was higher compared to how close the person was to the detonation site, but an average of a solid cancer between 1958 and 1998 among the survivors was 10% higher. Most of the survivors in this study received relatively modest doses of radiation. Now, let's go back to Nevada. As I mentioned, 11 bombs were detonated between March 17th and June 4th in 1953, and all but two of these test bombs were more powerful than the bombs dropped on Hiroshima. Three were airdrops, seven were tower tests, and one was an airburst fired from a 280mm gun. So for Hiroshima, it was only a 13 kilotons. These were 16 kilotons, 24, 32, as high as 61 kilotons of thermonuclear fallout. The cast and crew of the movie The Conqueror were sleeping, riding horses, pitching tents, eating local produce and beef, etc., 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 for weeks on end. And, for the sake of reshoots, Hughes shipped 60 tons of the dirt from the site back to Culver City, Hollywood. He wanted to retain an element of realism and continuity. 
because, I mean, everything else was so authentic, so, so must the dirt be. Sorry, sorry. I just find it funny that if they weren't concerned about the script, and the characters, and the costuming, and the dialogue being authentic, why are they suddenly worried about the color of the dirt? Is it just me? And then side note, according to the 1980s People magazine article, that radioactive soil is now spread out all around a nearby industrial neighborhood. But by the time the film was released, they probably wished they were a bit more historically accurate on the other things more than the dirt. First off, the reviews of the movie were mostly very negative. The monthly film bulletin called it, quote, a rambling and rather ordinary western-type spectacle. The weekly contrived narrative is singularly lacking in dramatic tension, and it is difficult to see why this Temujin, for all his high-flown cries to heavens to support his destiny, as a potential world-beater or as even an amiable bandit, he is merely John Wayne struggling with an unfortunate piece of casting and such embarrassingly silly lines, end quote. Harrison's reports writes, quote, The story does not come through the screen with any appreciable dramatic force, and the acting is no more than acceptable. End quote. The New York Times wrote, quote, With a script that should get a few unintentional laughs, the conqueror somewhat apologetically states that this is a fiction based on fact. The facts appear to have been lost in a technicolored cloud of charging horsemen, childish dialogue, and rudimentary romance, end quote. It did get a bit of grace from the Los Angeles Times praising the director, quote, Powell deserves much credit for maneuvering the fierce and sensational battle scenes which are a big highlight when the Mongols and Tartars clash, end quote. The marketing department did their job. The audience was ready to give John Wayne a chance as a Mongolian historical figure. People loved the idea of the casting and were anxiously awaiting its debut. I didn't even really get to tell you about the cast. It was a dream cast for almost any other movie but this one. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougere here from Bag of Bones podcast. Since Damsel in Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. <laughs> I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Ah, the indelible John Wayne. He actually started in the movie industry as a prop man. He was added to films as extra as early as 1928. 
He had 13 uncredited appearances to his name before director Raoul Walsh gave Wayne his big break in The Big Trail in 1930. And then he reached that Hollywood superstardom when director and friend John Ford cast him as the Ringo Kid in the classic western Stagecoach in 1939. Make no mistake, John Wayne paid his dues with more than 60 low-budget roles in between. Maybe he thought this role would expand his repertoire. He's done well in other molds. A retired boxer, a pilot, military movies, even a comedy or two. But this one movie would haunt him for the rest of his days. He would cringe in interviews when the reporter would bring up his Genghis Khan role. A Hollywood co-star, Kirk Douglas, would explain the Duke this way, quote, I did four movies with John Wayne. We were a strange combination. He was a Republican and I was a Democrat. We argued all the time. John Wayne was a star because he always played John Wayne. Frankly, he wasn't an excellent actor, but good heavens, what a star. It wasn't John Wayne who served the roles. The roles served John Wayne. End quote. His beautiful co-star Susan Haywood would also take a hit for choosing this film. She was well-established herself in the movie industry. The role of Scarlett O'Hara would bring her to the Hollywood audition scene, and even though she lost the role to Vivian Lee, she didn't let it slow her down. By the time the role in The Conqueror had come along, she had already been nominated for an Oscar. Four times. And maybe when she read the script, she found it to be silly and beneath her. She was known for taking some really meaty parts. I'm sure she figured, billing just under John Wayne? What could possibly go wrong? Pedro Armenderes. This was an actor who made a career in films straddling both sides of the border of Mexico and the United States. He is considered one of the best-known Latin American movie stars of the 1940s and 50s. Side note, this was a film the whole family could be involved in. Pedro's father made an appearance, and so did two of John Wayne's sons. Pedro remembers the fierce winds while on set and his father's role as a Mongol soldier. He said, quote, he did take an awful lot of falls and was constantly having to be hosed down due to the heavy dust, end quote. Agnes Moorhead didn't have a very large role in the movie, but she is legendary in her own right. Spending over four decades in the biz, she is remembered for her work in radio, stage, film, and television. According to one of her bios, quote, During the 1940s and 1950s, Moorhead was one of the most in-demand actresses for radio dramas, especially on the CBS show Suspense. During the 946-episode run of Suspense, Moorhead was cast in more episodes than any other actor or actress. She was often introduced on the show as the first lady of suspense, end quote. The world, though, I'm afraid, will always remember her for her reoccurring role as the mother of Samantha Stevens in Bewitched. Not a terrible thing, just probably not what she might have chosen for herself. Behind the scenes, Howard Hughes, as I mentioned earlier, was the producer. And while this movie ends up receiving a Rotten Tomatoes and several other derogatory awards, it didn't really harm him financially. I mean, Howard Hughes. But as with all of his endeavors, he was emotionally involved. This one not only bombed at the box office, but the story around it ends tragically, which we'll cover in a bit. 
Hughes would end up spending around $12 million to buy back every copy of The Conqueror he could find to keep it out of the public eye. And then, trying to right some unforeseeable wrong, this was one of the movies that he would watch on repeat for hours and hours. No one really knows what was going on in his mind, but it must have been painful for him to put himself through the self-depreciating torture for days on end. It did disappear for some time, and then Universal Pictures purchased the film from his estate in 1979 and re-released it. This movie would claim the end of RKO Pictures, which Hughes acquired in 1948, and would alter the course of his last 20 years. Most remember Dick Powell as the crooning leading man in many of the musicals from the 1940s and 50s. He was able to shift with the ever-changing entertainment industry and keep busy, and employed, both in front of and behind the camera. Just a few years before the Conqueror offer came along, Powell and three of his Hollywood BFFs would start their own production company, Four Star Television, in 1954. The Conqueror would be only his second directing gig for the big screen. Eh, thanks a lot, John Wayne. But the one who probably gets the most flack, but is rarely named, would be the screenwriter, Oscar Millard. And that seems about right. He began his career as a novelist, and he had a screenplay nominated for an Academy Award. I don't know, maybe his heart wasn't in it. But the writing fell flat. Hughes got the funding, the high-quality doodads and lenses, Powell directed the cast, and while he may be green as far as a director's chair, he was dealing with an experienced cast. But it all comes back to the cardboard performances. The dialogue was stale, artificial, certainly not historical or regional for that matter. So while all the captains go down with the ship, all seem to have fared well on the other side, as well as their careers were concerned. The Conqueror was a humbling experience for Wayne. It was one of the few times that he would be badgered for poor acting. Both John Wayne and Susan Hayward would go on to win their Oscars, serving up the best performances of their careers, and everyone stayed active until their deaths. And yeah, about that. I'll be right back. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. The First to Die January 1963, seven years after The Conqueror was released, the director, Dick Powell, died of lung cancer. On September 27, 1962, Powell acknowledged rumors that he was undergoing treatment for cancer. They originally misdiagnosed the cancer as an allergy, but after returning to California from a press tour, Powell's physician found malignant tumors on his neck and chest. He died at the age of 58 on January 2nd. And then, Pedro Armendariz, just a few months later, was told he had terminal bladder and kidney cancer with only three months to live. He chose to take his own life before the cancer could. Armendariz's last performance was in the James Bond film From Russia with Love in 1963. The cancer started in his hips and spread. He was in a great deal of pain, but carried on through the filming to ensure that his family would be taken care of. Finally, he became so sick during the Bond movie filming that his final few scenes had to be performed by his double. 
Armanderes, died four months before the release of the film. He was only 51. Agnes Moorhead died of uterine cancer on April 30, 1974. She would be the first to notice the trend. Most of the cast were smokers, and for a while it was easy to blame their habit as a doorway to the disease. But Moorhead was very particular about her lifestyle. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke. She tried to stay very healthy. She would hear the rumors about quote-unquote radioactive germs in Utah, and then later, as the deaths of the cast and crew began to add up, she would say, quote, everybody in that picture has gotten cancer and died, end quote. Even as the cancer was destroying her body, she would tell her best friend, Debbie Reynolds, quote, I should have never taken that part, end quote. She was 73. Her mother outlived her to the age of 106. In March of 1972, Susan Hayward's doctor found a lung tumor that metastasized, and after a seizure in April 1973, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. In less than two years from her diagnosis, she suffered a final seizure in her home on March 14, 1975. She was dead at only 57. And John Wayne? It was in 1963 when he was first diagnosed with lung cancer. He fought it, giving up a lung and four ribs, but not his cigarettes. He went on to make many more movies and won his Academy Award for his portrayal of Rooster Cogburn in the movie True Grit in 1969 after 40 years in the movie business. His final movie was The Shootist. This plot has an old gunslinger returning to a town to have a final shootout. The gunslinger is diagnosed with cancer and is preparing to die. From the time John Wayne was diagnosed with lung cancer, he had several surgeries from many ailments of a body getting older. The rumor is that he already had cancer for this final film. That was not the case. He was given a free-of-cancer bill of health, but only having one lung got so sick with pneumonia that the shoot had to be shut down for several days. However, three years after the shootist, John Wayne would meet the cancer that would finally take his life. It was 1979, and it was stomach cancer. There were more than 220 members of the cast and crew of The Conqueror. Side note, the Native Americans that appeared in the film as extras were not counted as either cast or crew. But following the cast through the years, by 1981, 92 were documented as developing cancer, and 46 died. When the Hiroshima bomb dropped, you'll remember around 10% of the people contracted some form of cancer over the next dozen years or so. With just those working on this film, the ratio jumps to almost 42%. Photographs exist of John Wayne holding a Geiger counter which detects radiation that reportedly made so much noise that he thought it was broken. Side note. In that most famous picture of Wayne and the Geiger counter, he is also seen with his two sons, Michael and Patrick. Both ended up and beating their own bouts with cancer. The Conqueror was later mocked as an RKO radioactive picture. All joking aside, Howard Hughes took this tragedy to heart, and even though he checked in with all the people he was supposed to, and even though all those people said it was okay to film there, he still held himself responsible for all of the bad press and the lives lost. He attempted to use his political and economic influence in Nevada to attempt the halt of further testing. This was in the 1960s and 70s, so the cancer being caused by the radiation on that set hadn't really gotten out yet. Or maybe he knew more than he let on. 
Being an owner of several businesses in Las Vegas, he approached it from that angle. He said that he was worried about the residual nuclear radiation from the underground testing that had continued. He tried every trick in the book to get people to listen and to get the testing stopped. This included million-dollar bribes to two separate presidents, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, all to no avail. This was the beginning of Howard Hughes' end. This was when his erratic behavior was taking over, and he would go from hotel to hotel camping out on the top floors. If any hotel was unwilling to accommodate, he just bought it. By the 1970s, he was the largest single landholder and business holder in Nevada. He would continually move between his residences in Las Vegas, the Bahamas, Nicaragua, Canada, England, and Mexico. On April 5, 1976, he became so ill that his aides decided he needed emergency medical care. He died en route to his hometown of Houston, Texas. One of the richest men in America dies alone from kidney failure. The people from the town of St. George, Utah, who are referred to as downwinders, more than 60,000 people were exposed to radioactive fallout. Cancer reports have skyrocketed well into the 1980s. The people of the town and nearby Snow Canyon were under the impression that they were safe. They were assured they were safe. A published report coming out of St. George that was prepared for congressional investigators on the impact of the bomb tests concludes, quote, All evidence suggesting that radiation was having harmful effects, be it on the sheep or the people, was not only disregarded but actually suppressed, end quote. Actors Lee Van Cleef died of throat cancer in December 1989, and John Hoyt died of lung cancer in 1991. Jean Gerson, an actress from The Conqueror, contracted skin cancer in 1965, and then breast cancer in 1977. She says, quote, I've always been convinced that it's more than a coincidence, end quote. She hired an attorney to press a class action suit against the U.S. government. She died in 1992 of cancer at the age of 87. Quote, How dare people not be warned if there is some knowledge of even a potential danger? End quote. Ellen Powell, Dick Powell's daughter, would join in the crusade to bring the Utah radiation to light. She and her brother Norman, who watched their father battle the disease, would rally with the residents of St. George. Her brother Norman came on board because he believed that a lawsuit by the relatives of movie stars might help draw more attention for residents of St. George. He spoke out, quote, These poor folks, with no celebrities among them, are just quietly dying out there and nobody cares. But with the high number of casualties among a Hollywood cast, maybe someone will sit up and take notice, end quote. And they did. According to journalist Rory Carroll of The Guardian, quote, in the early 1960s, multiple cases of childhood leukemia and adult cancers began to appear, a shaking novelty because Mormons who shun alcohol and tobacco typically have lower cancer rates. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1984 compared those in the fallout area with other Mormons and found leukemia levels five times higher, end quote. The government attempted to continue to deny that there could be no cancer-causing fallout. But when lawsuits discovered internal reports proving that scientists and officials downplayed and distorted evidence, Congress was forced to create the RECA in 1990, Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. 
This is a fund for those living in the area who were diagnosed with cancer and other serious illnesses linked to the above-ground nuclear weapons testing. They are paying out up to $50,000 per person in July of 2022. Rory Carroll says, quote, The funds have dispersed about $2 billion and is set to continue until the first-generation downwinders have died out, end quote. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode. If you are loving the content shared here, please let others know. Word of mouth has been the best in helping others to tune in. And if you wouldn't mind, would you also leave a five-star rating and review so the podcast platforms will put the suggestion for others to listen as well. I appreciate all of your comments and email. If you'd like to interact, you can find me on our Facebook and Instagram accounts at Bag of Bones Podcast, or you can reach me directly at www.elizabethbougeret.com. I look forward to meeting you back here next week. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until our next episode. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.